Good morning. Please be opening your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. We'll be looking today at verses 12 through 14. In uh, Matthew 18, 1, the disciples came to Jesus asking, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? In Mark 9, 33-34, we find out that they had spent much of the entire journey through Galilee into Capernaum discussing which one of them was the greatest. It wasn't so much that they wanted to know who was the greatest. They actually wanted to be confirmed in their already held opinion that they were the greatest, each one. I'm the greatest. Jesus took the opportunity to rebuke them in the form of a vivid object lesson. He called a little toddler over to himself and he took the child up in his arms. The first lesson he taught was that their lofty opinion of themselves would exclude them from the kingdom altogether. If you're so concerned and absorbed with being the greatest in the kingdom, you're showing you don't even have the heart of a kingdom citizen. Truly, I say to you, unless you be converted and become like children, you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. Or let's be the greatest. Instead of arguing over who the greatest in the kingdom was, they needed to accept the lowest rank. The only way to ascend is to descend. Do they wish to become great? Then they must become little. Do they wish to rise? Then let them sink. Do they wish to rule? Then let them serve. That's the humble heart of the child of the kingdom. But it wasn't only their opinion of themselves that needed to be corrected. There was also a problem with their treatment of other such little ones. God has other children besides you. And He loves each and every one. And instead of fighting over which one of them was the greatest, putting down the other to elevate themselves, they needed to be active in intentionally receiving other little ones. Welcoming them, valuing them. Valuing their contributions and their welfare. They needed to see to it that they didn't despise to think little of any of God's children. That's of urgent importance because if they offended even one of the Father's little ones, it would invoke the anger and wrath of God against them. It would be better than a millstone be tied about their neck and them drowned in the depths of the sea. The same protective spirit that you have towards your children... God has toward His, but to a much greater and more holy degree. These verses make it clear that the danger is nothing less than eternal, fiery hell. So He warns them of what they won't gain if they don't become like little children, and of what they will suffer if they keep treating others the way they've been treating them. Now this week we turn our attention to one more lesson that Jesus draws from this little toddler in His lap. And it is again related to our treatment of fellow little ones. It's in 18, 12 through 14. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go and search for the one that is straying? And if it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you that he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which have never gone astray. So it is the will of the Father who is in heaven. So it is not the will of the Father, your Father who is in heaven, 
that one of these little ones perish. We're going to look at this picture of a wealthy shepherd, the pursuit of a wayward sheep, and the pleasure of a warm-hearted seeker this morning. So let's look at this picture of a wealthy shepherd. begins in verse 12. What do you think if any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray? This change in metaphor from child to sheep seems abrupt. But it serves to make a powerful point, the implications of which we're going to unpack later. But let's read the translation from child to sheep together in verse 10 through 12. He says, See to it that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now skip 11, it's bracketed. It's probably brought in actually from Luke 19, not original to this text. So the, the transition's even more abrupt. Verse, so it's, Their angels always behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. And then it's, What do you think? What does it seem to you? It it invites the hearers to reflect even more deeply or from another angle, but it's intended to enhance the point that's already been made. Okay? The point being that the Father loves His children. That's the point He just made, right? He takes offense against His children very seriously, and He sets Himself against those who despise one of His little children. That's what He's just made. That's the point He's just made, right? And the angels in heaven that behold the face of His Father, these warrior angels, they're, they're standing there. They, they are on guard against anyone who would hurt one of these little ones. Point he's just made. Don't despise them. And now Jesus changes the metaphor from the more important child to the less important sheep to make the point even more emphatically. Of course he feels that way about children. Now, you just think about how a man would even feel toward a sheep. If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, what do we see in this new picture? Well, first we see the shepherd. Well, we ask the question, who is the shepherd? If you say God, you got the answer wrong. If you say it's the disciples, uh, no, it's not the disciples. Jesus is making an observation about any man. It tells us, doesn't it? If any man, this is an observation about any man in the whole world who had a hundred sheep. The story makes an observation about what any reasonable, successful shepherd would do in the situation that follows. That's what's happening here. Luke records a time when Jesus used this parable in a different context, and the point was the same there. In Luke 15, 4, What man among you? Like, this is just reasonable that any man would do this. That's the point he's making. The point that is that what any man would do and how any man would feel in this situation with a sheep. And two things that any Palestinian shepherd knew about sheep. And one thing that a Palestinian shepherd knew about sheep was that they were valuable. Sheep were treated as a prized possession in Jesus' day. Sheep provided meat, milk, and wool, and they produced offspring. Usually produce one to three lambs per gestation period. A gestation period is around five months, so one could reasonably expect two to six lambs per year from a ewe. 
And lambs are ready for market any time from weaning up to six months after birth. And a healthy lamb would bring about 1.5 shekels, which would be about three days wages at the market. So we can think in our terms, to make it simple for us, each lamb, when you sold it, would bring about $600. So... And especially fertile ewe could produce up to six lambs in a year, which would sell for around nine shekels or 18 days wages in a year. That's $3,600 per year until death alone shall part you from that ewe. That's what you're getting out of that ewe. That's valuable, isn't it? Pretty good income off of the ewe. Uh, a low side expectation would be equivalent of two lambs, which would sell for three shekels or $1,200 per year. If a shepherd wanted to sell a grown ewe that was known to be especially productive and it was of the right age and color and condition, it would bring, a grown ewe would bring 12 shekels or 24 days wages. Each ewe would be worth, in our terms, about $4,800. So yeah, sheep were valuable. But every shepherd knew that sheep were not only valuable, sheep were vulnerable. Sheep are stupid. Among the most stupidest of all the creatures on the earth. And I said most stupidest on purpose. Okay, One way they show their stupidity is by mindlessly wandering off. They, they are in constant need of fencing or oversight or they gone. They can have a good shepherd who has brought them to the best of grazing lands near an abundant supply of water, but they will still wander off to where the fields are barren and the water is undrinkable. That's what sheep can do. Without a shepherd to guide them from barren fields to green pastures, they sometimes stay in the same place until they starve. And not only do they risk starvation when out from under the care of a shepherd, but the Palestinian terrain was filled with ravines and gullies and caves and crevices into which a sheep could wander or fall, resulting in death or injury. And then, of course, you have to consider not only are they stupid, but they're also weak and helpless. Sheep have basically no ability whatsoever to defend themselves. They have... Two options. They can run slowly, more slowly than basically any predator that might be hankering for some mutton. They, they run, but not fast. And they can kick, but not particularly well. Uh, just about good enough to put their leg in the wolf's mouth to make it easier for it to take that first bite. That's about how good they can kick. So, another thing that we see in this parabolic picture, though, is it's not just the shepherd. It is a, it's a shepherd that doesn't have a sheep or two, but a shepherd who has a hundred sheep flock. Sheep were an indicator of personal wealth, both in the Old and the New Testament. To emphasize Abraham's wealth, Eleazar, he's talking about how rich his master is, and he starts in Genesis twenty-four thirty-five. He has become rich, and God has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold. Where does he start? What's the first thing he says out of his mouth? First thing he says, he has given him flocks and herds and gold and silver. The income-producing potential and overall value of a flock of this size was substantial. Just do the math with me. If you sold the lambs at market, and there was... And and believe me, you're going to be able to, right? Because there's an absolutely continuous market for it because of the sacrificial system. 
So there's always, you're having to sacrifice lambs, so there's always somebody needing one to sacrifice. So you've always got somebody wanting to buy one. The income from these lambs would be between $120,000 and $360,000 per year from the lambs you would get from a flock of 100. It's a lot, isn't it? It's a lot. That's not to mention the potential income from the sale of milk and wool and meat. If you just wanted to not have to fool with it anymore, though, and you wanted to cash out, you were sitting on a small fortune. Depending on the age, color, and condition of the sheep, you could reasonably expect the equivalent of between $400,000 and $480,000 in selling all the sheep off. Just cash out in a lump sum. Move to the beach in Florida, right? A lot of money. Guys, that was a substantial wealth for a first century Palestinian. Now to another detail in this picture. You've got one stray sheep. So we have a man with substantial wealth for that time period. He has a hundred sheep flock and one, only one sheep goes missing. The point being made here is the seeming insignificance of the one in comparison with the ninety-nine. If one sheep went astray, the shepherd would still have a large flock, right? Still a large flock. If you looked at the flock before and after the one sheep went missing without counting the sheep, you would almost certainly not notice the difference. The, you, you'd, you'd be like, wow, look, a huge flock of sheep. And then if one was missing, you'd look and you'd say, wow, look, a huge flock of sheep. If you saw a 99 uh, sheep flock and a 100 sheep flock right next to each other, and you said, which one of these flocks is bigger? You wouldn't notice unless you stopped and counted, probably, would you? Just a big, whole bunch of sheep. If you, um, and the income potential of the flock goes from quite high to what? To still quite high, right? Uh, literally, only a 1% loss there. At worst, he'd be going from the equivalent of $120,000 a year from the lamb sales alone to, uh, you know, like... 118,800. Basically, he'd go to the McDonald's the same amount of times either way, couldn't he? The value of the flock at worst would go from 400,000 to 395,200. You might think, well, that's just a rounding error. If he lost the sheep, he'd go from an inexhaustible fortune for that time period to, well, to an inexhaustible fortune for that time period. But what does Jesus say that we would see next in this scenario? We wouldn't see him not caring. We would see the pursuit of the wayward sheep. That's what he says, isn't it? Look at verse 12. Does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go and search for the one that is straying? There's no question in Jesus' mind what would happen next. With a sense of urgency, the shepherd would leave the large flock. The value of the one sheep is not diminished because the flock is big. When the shepherd recognizes that the one sheep is missing, he immediately springs to action. Yes, he has 99 more, but they are accounted for, and he knows that they, those 99, they're safe. If he doesn't act quickly, though, the vulnerable sheep will surely fall victim to starvation, to the dangers of the terrain that we mentioned a few minutes ago, to being torn to shreds by the predators that they can't outrun and they can't fight off. 
We're not told how he secures the rest of the flock on the mountain when he leaves. We're not told. Perhaps he leaves them with another under-shepherd. Or perhaps he encloses them in a sheepfold. No time is taken explaining how that the other 99 are dealt with, and that's the point. They're not in danger, so in that moment, no thought is given to them. They don't matter anymore. He's worried about the one that's in peril. The one that might be lost. All that matters to him in that moment. Only the lost value of the one sheep is on the mind of the shepherd in that moment. Though only one is missing, the shepherd's whole routine is altered. His whole day has changed, hasn't it? He concentrates all of his energy on recovering the one. I hone in on the value of the sheep because I think that's the point. Although some commentators focus in on the preciousness of the sheep or on compassion toward the sheep, I'm convinced that that's not the point for at least two reasons. One is hireling versus owner, as is pointed out elsewhere by Jesus. Jesus says that a hireling shepherd wouldn't risk anything for the life of the sheep. Only the owner would. Remember, he says in John 10, 12, He who is a hired hand and not the shepherd who is the owner of the sheep sees the wolf coming and he just leaves the sheep and flees. Well, the sheep is still a sheep. If it's all compassion over this poor little innocent sheep, he wants to save life either way. The point here is you're going to lose this asset. He flees because he's a hired hand. And he's not concerned with the sheep. Because it ain't his sheep. And also in a twin parable in Luke 15, right after Jesus gives this identical parable in another context, he gives a twin parable teaching the same point where the focus can't be compassion for a sheep because it's a woman losing a coin. She has ten coins and she loses one coin. And it's the same outcome. She doesn't... She's not excited about the nine she still has, she's still just as anxious about finding the one coin that's lost. It's the value. That's the point. The nine coins don't comfort her. She can't think about what she still has, but only about what she's lost. So we see them leaving the 99, and we see a diligent search. Look at verse 12b. Does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go and search for the one that is lost, the one that is straying? This word for search is to try to find, to seek information, to desire. It even can be used to demand, to demand something. That it, 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 there's a, 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 you're torn in your spirit, you've got to have it kind of idea. You're searching diligently. Notice the certainty and universality of Jesus' assertion. If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety and nine? What would lead men to search uh, to a, such a diligent search? Well, with it being a sheep, it could be compassion. I want to I point this out. Compassion could compel a man to go look for a sheep. And Proverbs 12.10 says, A righteous man has regard for the life of his beasts. It does say that, doesn't it? Some men and women are more naturally sympathetic toward the suffering of animals, aren't there? You know some of them. When an animal is hungry, cold, lost, or scared, their heart naturally goes out to their sheep, their dog, their cat, their cow, or whatever. I don't care if it's a beast of burden, a pet, or a future meal of theirs. Their concern for their comfort, the health, and safety of that animal, it would absolutely keep them up at night. You know the type of person, don't you? Well, I ain't naturally that guy, though. 
I watched the commercials with Sarah McGoughlin singing uh, in the arms of the angels, you know, with the TV on the TV begging for money to help all the sad-looking dogs on the screen, and I never once was tempted to go get my wallet or my checkbook. Not once. Went to bed and slept like a baby. That's what I did. But I know that animal suffering matters and concern for such things is godly and I seek to grow in those things. But my point is that not everyone is compassionate and Jesus says that any man with a hundred sheep would leave the ninety-nine. Not just an especially compassionate one, any man would do it, right? Anybody. That's what Jesus says. Well, another reason you might is stewardship. I can get on board with that one. Obviously, if a man has worked hard enough to build up a flock of a hundred sheep, he's a pretty good manager or businessman. The godly man knows that God has blessed him with everything he has and that it's his job to steward it well. What an insult to God to say, Yeah, I lost one of your sheep, but look how many I still have. No. How foolish. We're not only responsible to take care of what God has given us, but it's actually our job to grow what God has entrusted to us. Sheep reproduce, and the and, and the lost asset is a lot is lost potential production for the shepherd's entire family and a benefit to the whole community. This life matters for the people that he loves around him. Remember the parable of the talents and the rebuke that came to the man when he was given one talent. What did he do with it? He buried it in the ground instead of using it and trying to grow it. A godly man will not be paralyzed by his failures and losses, but he will attempt to limit them, to reverse them when possible, and regretfully learn from them when he fails. But not everyone's a godly man, stewarding his resources to the, God, uh, to the glory of God. And again, Jesus says, any man with a hundred sheep would leave the ninety-nine and search for him. So it might be because of compassion, it might be because of stewardship, and that God's entrusted this to me, but at the very least, any other man... Their security in assets. Any man feels that. Now, it might be idolatrous, but everybody recognizes I need, you have to have money. Is, is money the root of all evil? No, the love of it is. Money promises security, doesn't it? The name of the Lord, Proverbs 18.10, is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. But a rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. The rich man's wealth is his fortress. It also says in Proverbs 10.15. When a man has $400,000 in his retirement account, does he still want to get to five hundred? dollars or is he just fine now? I, you know, I don't really care about getting my retirement account growing. No, he's going to check, isn't he? He's going to check that 401k statement when it comes in the mail, isn't he? Why? Well, retirement's coming and he wants the security of that. The, the non-godly man who built his flock to a hundred sheep likely did it for financial security. And you can never have too much security, can you? What car dealer among you, if he had a hundred cars on his lot and he takes inventory and one car is missing, does he not check the security footage to get a lead and then leave the 99 cars on the lot and file a police report to try everything in his power to recover the one missing car? And of course when he does, there's more joy over the one recovered car than over the 99 that never left the lot. We can say it that way too, can't we? Same thing. And any man would do that. 
Any man would feel that way. Not everyone is compassionate, not everyone's a godly steward, and not but and not everyone finds security in assets, but someone but but some one of those things is gonna hit you. One of them. Any man who accumulated a hundred sheep flock would at least check one of those boxes and therefore would do exactly what Jesus says he would do. He would leave the 99 on the mountain and go and search for the one that is straying. And then see what happens when he finds it. It's not just the pursuit, but when he does find it, there's pleasure of a warm-hearted seeker. He's got pleasure there, doesn't he? Look at verse 13. If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Let's begin with the relief of finding the sheep. If it turns out that he finds it. Notice the the way it's phrased emphasizes the uncertainty of the search. If it turns out. So he's searching for a while. and if, like, there, We're not sure it's going to happen, but if it does work, if this is one of the rare times that this actually turns out that he does find the sheep, there are times when a straying sheep cannot be found. And it's pro- might even be usually. Before it's found, it may be killed by drowning or by falling in a hole or by it being devoured by a wolf. Who knows? The entire search would be marked by dread. Last year, for a relatively short period of time, I had 11 chickens. My favorite hen was Cindy Lauper, and my favorite rooster was Bon Jovi. Yes, I'm an 80s kid, right? So, sue me. When I got home one day, I had nine chickens, which were still in the chicken trailer. Which two were missing? Well, of course, it was Cindy Lauper and Bon Jovi were gone. Couldn't find them. We looked everywhere for those birds. We found a few feathers a few feet away and some more in the neighbor's yard. And we searched with a dreadful, fading hope. We're like looking, hoping we'll find it, but kind of feeling like, no, there's no way. They didn't pluck this chicken and let it live, I don't think. There wasn't any joy over uh, the nine chickens that we still had. We didn't say, oh, well, we still have nine chickens in the chicken trailer. No, there was this desire that the other two missing chickens were okay. It consumed us for a time. We never found them. We never got to experience this next part, the certainty of greater rejoicing. Truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety and nine which had not gone astray. The shepherd rejoices, is delighted more, is more delighted over this one found sheep than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. Jesus isn't saying that the shepherd doesn't rejoice over the ones that are safe or he doesn't care about them. But he points out that there's a peculiar joy over bringing one that is lost safely back into the fold. The greater joy over the one recovered sheep is caused by the recovery of something that the shepherd had basically chalked up as a loss. In his heart, he thought, I'm probably not getting this back. It's, it's gone, and there's that sadness, you're upset, you've, you've lost this thing. And, but then, oh, no! And the joy is even more enhanced because you thought it was gone, but it's not. It's not about any inherent superiority in the sheep itself. That's where my comparison with Cindy Lauper and Bon Jovi breaks down. They were inherently better than all of my other chickens. But the point here is 
that one lost sheep, they're all exactly the same. But that one lost one, you thought it was gone. But when you get it back, you're more excited that you didn't lose the asset than you would have been if it never was at risk anyway. The relief. The shepherd thought he had squandered an asset. He hadn't been a good enough shepherd. This performance thing that I failed to protect my sheep. No, 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 it's okay. It's, it's alright. My failure didn't result in the loss of this asset. I don't have to beat myself up anymore over this. You've all experienced that, haven't you? Where you thought you did something stupid that was going to cost you. And wow, no, I did something stupid, but it didn't cost me this time. And you're relieved. But you've not cost yourself. You might have done it when you accidentally backed over something in your car and you're like, oh, and then you run out to the back of your car, the bumper that you've always taken for granted, you're expecting it to be scuffed, but lo and behold, you look and then, wow, somehow I hit this. I didn't drive well and I thought I'd ruined my bumper, but there's not a scratch on it. And there's more joy over the bumper that's not scratched that you thought might be than there would have been had you not ever had the incident, right? It's just natural. You're reminded not to take it for granted anymore. So there's more joy over that. The dreadful fading hope is replaced with a joyful relief that makes the recovery all the more enrapturing. Have you ever lost something of value? Any of you? And then frantically turned the house upside down to find it? We can all relate, can't we? In that moment, you could think of nothing else, could you? Like somebody's trying to talk to you about something else and you're like, I don't care about that right now. I've got to find this. It's consuming my heart and my mind. And whatever you lost was likely worth far less than 1% of your annual income or 1% of your net worth. Wouldn't you say? Worth way less. It still consumes you. I got to live out this whole parable recently with AirPods. I listen to a lot of sermons and books uh, and podcasts on my phone. I've got my ear, uh, AirPods in my ears a lot. I'm a big fan of my Air, AirPods, but they're pretty expensive. Nowhere near 1% of my net worth expensive, but to get a pair, you're looking at probably spending around $200. I dropped one out of the case once, not too long ago. Still had old lefty, but old righty was gone. Couldn't find it. Looking everywhere. I looked everywhere for that thing. And true story, I didn't even want to use the AirPod that I still had while I was searching. Like I didn't want left, I still had lefty. I didn't even want it in my ear. I, I typically would be looking for, uh, listening to something while I was looking for something. But the reminder that of the, hearing the sermon in left ear while it's not playing in right ear was just a reminder of I have stupidly lost this AirPod and now I'm going to have to pay to replace it. That dread. Ugh. And then... I ended up finding it in the gravels at 2030 Main Street before I sold that house. And I had more joy over the recovered AirPod than I did over the one that was never lost. If a man has two AirPods and one of them is lost, does he not put the one in the case and go and search diligently for the other AirPod? And if it turns out that he finds it, he rejoices over it more than the one that remained in the case the entire time. It's the same thing. Same thing. How is this parable about a lost sheep another lesson related, though, to the little one in Jesus' lap? Why is this sermon titled, Our Treatment of Fellow Little Ones? When well, verse 14, Jesus takes us back to our treatment and our temperament toward little ones. We have, we have this little parable to emphasize another point. 
related to not despising the little ones, not caring to even cause offense. And it's about sharing the compassionate heart of the Father. Look at verse 14. So it's not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. The parable of the shepherd's concern for the lost sheep is analogous to our Father's concern for one straying little one. But, but the argument is from lesser to greater. Now watch, watch these lesser to greater arguments. It's the lesser random man compared to the great heavenly Father. Our great heavenly Father. Okay? We've seen this exact same construct used in the exact same way earlier in Matthew. What man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf of bread will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a snake? He won't do that, will he? If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Any man would be concerned for a straying sheep even if he had a whole flock full of sheep. Would the Father not be concerned for the little ones, he's better than this man is. He's better than just any old man out there that you don't know anything about that might be doing it for compassion, might be doing it out of stewardship, or might just be doing it out of his own concern for security. Our Heavenly Father's better than this any man dude. He's better. But not only that, you've got another lesser to greater comparison. The lesser sheep compared to the greater little ones. We've seen this exact same construct used in the exact same way earlier in Matthew 2, haven't we? In Matthew 12, 11 through 12. What man is there among you? Notice the what man, what man both times. What man is there among you who has a sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is the man than the sheep? So... If this lesser random man would desire the safety and well-being of a mere asset, a sheep, don't you know that your heavenly Father is concerned with the safety and well-being of one such child who has been converted and humbled to the point of complete dependence on Him as their Father for these, one of these little ones who believes on Christ? Of course He is. He's concerned. If, if one of these little ones has gone astray, He doesn't want them to, leave, to go to ruin. He doesn't want them to be destroyed. And that's the last comparison from lesser to greater. The physical death of the sheep that doesn't have a soul that will never die, contrary to what a lot of people say. Humans are more important than animals. If you need that explained to you, you need more help than I know how to give you. Okay? But the physical death of the sheep compared to the eternal damnation of the lost. What does this word perish mean? What's well, used throughout the book of Matthew. Apollonia, enter into the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to Apollonia, destruction. And many there be that enter in it. 10, 28, don't fear those who can kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to Apollonia, both soul and body and hell, destroy. We're talking about eternal destruction here. Matthew 16, 25 through 26. Whoever wishes to save his life will apollomite it, will, for, will destroy it eternally. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul, the eternal des destruction of the human soul? If the normal, everyday average man would urgently pursue a wayward sheep to protect it from temporal death then you know your heavenly Father would urgently pursue one of His straying precious little ones to protect them from eternal damnation. 
And where is this headed? We don't really get to it in, in earnest and in fullness this week, but it's, it, it's headed to our duty in light of the Father's hearts toward these little ones. We must align our hearts with the heart of God. If we want to usher in the kingdom of heaven, we have to think lowly of ourselves. We're just little ones, humble and not more important than our brothers and sisters. We have to esteem them and treat them well, receiving them, making sure that we're not causing offense because God takes that very, very seriously and not despising them. And we have to pursue them. More than any man would pursue a sheep. But the way that the Father would pursue one of these little ones, we must align our hearts with the hearts of God. In this last section, Jesus gave us a glimpse of the heart of God by helping us experience His intense anger toward those who mistreat His children, who didn't receive, who did offend, who did despise. Perhaps you think you've nailed the receiving thing. Welcoming, retaining, acquiring a knowledge of these little ones. You're like, hey, I've done that. I'm very hospitable. I welcome people. I'm friendly. I'm kind. Perhaps you cannot remember a single time where you've scandalized one, where you've intentionally given offense, where you've excited feelings of disgust, abhorrence, or hatred, or dislike, or contempt, where you've done something that might cause somebody to fall away. You're like, hey, you know, my conscience is clear here. I'm very careful not to do that. I'm not intentionally offensive. Perhaps in your heart of hearts you truly don't think that you've ever begun to despise, to think little of, to look down on, to think lightly of, or disregard one of these little ones. But as nice and wonderful as you might have been to them, sometimes people stray anyway, don't they? Actually, Jesus warned us that that was going to happen. Look back, you're in Matthew 18. Look back at Matthew 18.7. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it's inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man from whom the stumbling blocks come. Even if it's not you, there will be people who stumble. There will be other people who will cause offense and cause stumbling of other of the little ones. It's going to happen. Even if you're not the cause of the stumbling or or they're straying from the fold, you must care because God cares. It's one of their children. They're straying and you have to care. Verse 14, it's not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. A so-called Christian doesn't image God in his calloused indifference to a straying, sinning, or otherwise struggling little one. You don't image God when you don't care about one of these eternal souls of these people who have shown that they believe in Him. When they stray, it may not be your fault, but it's definitely still your responsibility. Let me say that again. When they stray, and they will, it's inevitable that stumbling blocks come. When they stray, it may not be your fault, but it's definitely still your responsibility. Because you're a servant of the Father. A slave of the Father. A son, yeah, but a son and a slave. You're both. Don't let the door hit you and you're behind on your way out. I've heard people have that attitude toward church members, fellow church members. Things get a little little division, a little division. I'm going to use that one. Fissure in the relationship. We need your support, but if we can't get your support, we need your seat. 
You know what that is? It's despising one of the little ones. Thinking little of them. Their eternal soul that would... A shepherd wouldn't do that to one of his assets. But you'll do that to one of the father's children? You can show that calloused indifference to one of your heavenly father's children? The same anger he has for the person that's the stumbling block would he not have toward you if he was frantic over their eternal destination? And you weren't frantic too and concerned that they not perish. You don't get a free pass just because you've been nice. You don't get that. That's the point that's going on here. We don't get to say that guy's more trouble than he's worth. That's not the heart of a Christian. James 5.19 My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he that turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. This is eternally important. If you see your brother straying from the truth, how should you react? What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go and search for the one that's straying? And if it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine. We've had that happen a little bit, haven't we? And I hope we've modeled it at least somewhat well. That everything stops, our whole routine stops, that somebody is going somebody is showing themselves to be possibly apostate, and we have, I hope, modeled for you that it's not just okay, just let them go. No, no, no. We've got to try to fix what's going on here. We've got to try to be at peace and regain them to bring about restoration of the relationship. We have to. We have to leave our gift at the altar. Go and first, it's a priority, be reconciled to our brother. Why? Because that might be one of God's little sheep. And it's not his desire that any of his little ones perish. Jesus says that if you had a hundred sheep and one went astray, you'd leave the ninety-nine and search for it. You'd alter your whole routine for this one sheep. And if you found it, you'd be overcome with joy. Men would do so for a car missing from a lot, a chicken missing from a chicken, uh, chicken tractor, an earbud missing from a case, uh, or your TV remote. If you don't care about... Think about this. If you don't care, there's no angst in your spirit over a brother that is his soul's in peril because he's straying away, heading toward apostasy, leaving the church, breaking fellowship. If, you, if that doesn't, doesn't bother you more than the fact that you can't find your remote, God judges that. If you're like, man, I'm just so tore up, I can't find my earbud and you, you've been more upset about something you've lost than one of these people that might be eternally lost, that's the problem that's being addressed right here. Have you ever been so dominated by the loss of an asset that has some financial value and then had a callous indifference toward the sin or the strain of somebody at church? That they've not been here maybe for a month and you didn't even notice more or less reach out. That's what will lead to the lack of kingdom building. That will not lead to the keys being utilized on God's planet to bring about the storming of the gates of hell and them not prevailing against us. The world will know we are His disciples because of our love 
for one another. Imagine if one of your children was missing and you called to me to come and help you find him or her. And I said, well, I wish I could, but I can't right now. I'm looking for a sheep. Or I'm, I'm looking for a missing chicken or a missing AirPod or $20 that I've misplaced. How offended would you be? You care more about that stuff than you do helping me find my son or my daughter? We're doing that to God. That hits, doesn't it? That hits. We have over 100 members at Manorville Fellowship, 100, 100 attenders. If one is falling away, God forbid we ever say that we have plenty. It's good enough. Ah, you know, the giving's pretty good. I mean, shoot, we, we're bringing in about $120,000 a year in tithes and offerings. If we lose one, it's still going to be 118800 That doesn't really matter. A businessman wouldn't do that. How can we, as stewards of the souls of men, as under-shepherds under God the Great Shepherd, have that calloused indifference? See to it that you do not despise, think little of, look down on, think lightly of, disregard one of these little ones. I say to you, there are angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep? That's the flow. If you don't pursue like that one, if you don't pursue that one straying little one like anyone would pursue one straying sheep, are you not still despising, thinking little of, lightly of, or disregarding the little one? even if you're not the one that caused him to stumble. See to it that you don't. Sheep have value, not just the flock, but every single individual sheep. The little ones have value, not just the entire church. Every single individual little one who believes. These verses are preparing our minds for the reality of the church discipline passages that follow. Why do you do church discipline? Why, if your brother sins, do you go to him? That's the very next verse that we're going to get to. Very next one. Why do we do it? Because we care about the little ones and we don't want them to perish. That, hey, newsflash, sin still matters. And we encourage one another day by day as long as it is called today, lest anyone be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It will wreck their souls if they fall away. And his, 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 those that are truly his, they won't. Because the Father will work in us by the Spirit to go get them and they will respond and they will come back. But you've got to be the one that goes and gets them. It's your job. It's the body working together as it's supposed to. It's not as though elders are the only shepherds and everyone else is sheep. The Bible calls us to bear one another's burdens, doesn't it? To love one another, to care for one another. In some sense, we are all called in various ways to shepherd one another and to watch out for one another. If they matter to God, and they do, then they must matter to you. We are all to be shepherds while at the same time realizing that we are all also sheep. Elders are to be models of pastoral care, but not models to be looked at and admired, models to be emulated, to be copied. We've got to be doing it, but that doesn't mean we do it so you don't have to. It means we do it to show you how. We want to see you, our people, growing in confidence and joy in the Lord, such that you're discipling one another, counseling one another, and teaching one another. At this table, the communion table, we recommit to all of these things every week. 
You're covenanting with one another. You're, I'm one with all of you people. We're one flock. And you're covenanting to do exactly what I'm talking about. You're saying, we will serve one another. We will pursue one another. We will instruct one another. We will learn from one another. Here at this table, we are both under shepherds and sheep. We are fed by each other and we feed one another. Here we enact what our baptisms mean. That we do not belong to ourselves, but rather to our faithful Savior Jesus Christ and to His body, the church. Our membership vows... I also make this explicit, don't they? We've sworn loyalty and love to one another. And this means our highest priority is to see Christ formed in each other. And so we want to be intentional about this. Planning to love one another. Eating together. Fellowshipping together. Praying together. Supporting one another. As we seek to love the hurting and the straying in our lives. So I invite you back. Once again. Here. I invite you back. To recommit to these ideals. Say, hey man, I got on my toes today. I'm guilty. Join the club. We're guilty people. Jesus, we're, we're told what we're supposed to do. We should be doing these things. But if we were just, if it was law that would save us, we'd be in big trouble. But Jesus isn't just our prophet. Jesus did these things, didn't he? That verse that I don't think is original to Matthew, that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost... It is original to Luke, and it's still God's truth. He came and lived a perfect life, seeking you, never sinned. And that great shepherd laid down his life for his sheep. And that's us. We rest in that. We don't rest in it to say, hey, I'm going to rest in it and not worry about ever being like that great shepherd. No, we rest in it while we aspire to be conformed to his image. And we know that as we show this increasing concern for our fellow brothers and sisters, as we take that low seat of a little child, as we seek to receive all the little ones and not despise them and not cause them to stumble, and as we pursue them diligently with passion, where there are great joy in keeping them in the fold or bringing them back to the fold would be our great pleasure. As we do that, we image God and we will expand His kingdom. Let's commit to that, to the glory of God. Kind of gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this great parable. We thank you for the rebuke that it is and the comfort it is that you live this out perfectly so we can be forgiven where we haven't. We pray that by your Spirit you'll conform us to your image, make us like you, we, like you are, and then use us by your Spirit to be your arms and your legs to pursue your little ones. God, do that in us for your name's sake, your honor and glory. It's Jesus' name we pray. Amen.